So in the circles of cryptozoology, there's not a place on this planet, hardly, that you cannot find a giant hairy hominid of some sort. Now, you can call it whatever you want. We've done episodes about Bigfoot and Yeti. And one of the things is, is, is the evidence, the experience, like everybody sees a, a Bigfoot from far away and they take a fuzzy picture of it. The Patterson-Gimlin footage, you know, is fuzzy footage of a Bigfoot off in the distance. People take grainy photos of a Bigfoot. Is Bigfoot just not in focus? Like, is I mean, is that Bigfoot's well, problem? They take numerous <laughs> plaster casting. Yeah, you do have the pr- plaster castings of the feet. But as far as, like, absolute interaction with Bigfoot, it's not very common. Never found a dead one. Now, there are some stories out there about people who have been abducted by Sasquatch. Eric has one about a Native American woman. And I have one, which is probably one of the most known, which is the Albert Osman story. But we want to talk about times where Bigfoot snatched a person. This is new for me. From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded, we become fearful to be deceived. Still, we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten, and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. All right, when when Bill brought this topic to the table, literally I was like, do what? Bigfoot Sasquatch abducts people? I, I had not heard of this. Now, that just goes to show you I'm more of a historical guy, and he's the, the cryptid uh, guy. Yeah, but, I had definitely heard the Osman story before I'd read it multiple times. So, Well, again, me being the historical guy, I went back and uh, I wanted to find where did we get the term Sasquatch? Where did we get the term Bigfoot? When did those occur? So I'm going to kick off with a tidbit of history. Our common name for our furry friend, uh, Sasquatch, was actually coined by a gentleman by the name of J.W. Burns. Now, J.W. Burns, which actually you're going to hear a little bit more in my story about a Native American uh, lady that was abducted and impregnated by a Bigfoot. She was actually married to the same J.W. Burns. I mean, that right there is already a crazy story without any more details. That's weird. And I I know you have more for us. Now, that was due, the the name Sasquatch, was due to what was believed to be a misinterpreted or represented Native American name. When Mr. J.W. Burns was uh, relaying legends told to him by the Native American tribes, especially in the regions of Canada, where he did a lot of his research, he misspoke the name and in placed, uh, pronounced it as Sasquatch, as they say the rest is history. Now, I could not find what the proper term was that he misspoke or mispronounced. I was going to say, I mean, historically speaking, I always thought Sasquatch was the native term. So, But they're saying that that was a misinterpretation, at least amongst the Canadian Native Americans. The various tribes of the indigenous people, which includes Eskimos as well as the Native Americans in that region, also call these cryptids Forest Fathers or the Wild Ones. This is, again, terms that's used in areas of Canada. And we've addressed the Canadian Bigfoot uh, cryptid on some of our other podcasts. And uh, we've spoke about that they're, they're kind of, uh, no puns intended, but a different breed 
uh, often acting very different from what we would normally consider a Sasquatch or a Bigfoot. Well, I think what we established is that the further north you get, the more aggressive they become. Definitely. And maybe that's because, you know, it, it becomes more wild. Let's be honest, up in Canada and Alaska, there's a lot more wilderness than what we have here. So maybe well, they're on the defense down in America. <laughs> and that was also the first place, at least, that I uncovered that the uh, the indigenous people believe the Canadian versions can phase in and out of trees, which explains why they disappear so easily. That was the first time I had heard that. We don't have that. I think I'd heard reference to them being dimensional travelers of some sort at some point. Hey, if you've ever watched the, the real Ghostbusters cartoon show, <laughs> I believe there's an episode about Bigfoot where they are dimensional travelers. So well, there's, apparently that lore has been around at least since the 80s. There you go. Well, <laughs> and of course, there's the possible belief that Bigfoot are aliens from another planet. Uh, I mean, the list oh, goes on oh, and on. Those are Wookiees. Oh, Wookiees. Ah, yes, yes. Cousins. <laughs> we'll call them cousins. Now, going on further uh, today, Bigfoot, the name Bigfoot, first appeared on October 5th, 1958, in a copy of the Humboldt Times on a story about a gentleman by the name of Jerry Crew. And that is where we get uh, the other, I think, most common name, you know, Bigfoot uh, and Sasquatch, I believe, are the two most kind of commonly accepted in the cryptid world. Reports of Sasquatch or Bigfoot sightings go back hundreds of years in modern print. However, if you investigate the Native American legends, they can easily go back twice uh, that amount. Well, diving into this, like I said, the whole abduction aspect of the Sasquatch or Bigfoot, that was kind of a new one. So I, I really stretched. I wanted to try to find something less heard, uh, less known about. And I discovered a story of the, what is described as the first and only Native American Indian abduction story. Now, this is a crazy one, folks. It's one split upon believers and non-believers. I'm going to give you the facts, the best that I've been able to get. And as we always do here on the podcast, we'll let you decide. The location is in British Columbia, Canada. Uh, it takes place on what is known as the Chihalias Indian Reservation. Now, to put this into perspective and the amount, the sheer volume of amount of Sasquatch sightings Nearby this Indian reservation is literally Sasquatch Mountain <laughs> and Sasquatch Provincial Park. Uh, and again, this goes back just to the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sightings that are reported in this area. Now, this young uh, Native American Indian girl was named Seraphine Long. Uh, she did end up marrying J.W. Burns, who I had mentioned, uh, coined the name Sasquatch. Now, J.W. Burns was an Indian agent there on the Chihali, uh, Chihalias Indian Reservation. And Seraphine uh, now is a very old woman as of the interview of 2021. Uh, doesn't give an exact date of when the abduction occurred, but I'm, I'm thinking probably, you know, 90 years back or so. Now, she has relayed her story of being abducted as a young child by the elusive cryptid uh, Sasquatch or Bigfoot, as we now know today, many, many times to those that are closest uh, family or friends. I'm taking most of this research from cassette tape recordings and, and notes from particular people who heard her story again and again. I did find some inconsistencies, but again, as, as a person gets older in age, things seem to get a little bit fuzzier. So I'm going to go back to some of the earlier interviews, and uh, we're going to go with that as the facts. First off, it should be noted that among the Canadian indigenous people, both Native American and Eskimo, 
there is a true shortage of ratio of, of women to men. There are many more men than women. She replies to this that perhaps this is also true with the tribes of Sasquatch or Bigfoot that live in her area that she also refers to as the wild ones or forest fathers. Uh, so the Indians and Eskimos alike, they very much believe her story. It is not doubted at all. It's just by outsiders that it is doubted. Now, at the time of the young girl's abduction, which lasted for approximately a year, she was considered at the time as one of the tribe's most beautiful young women. Here is her story. She says in her own words, Many, many years ago, I was returning home from the forest where I had collected a stack of cedar roots. I was thinking of the young Indian brave Kulak, or Thunderbolt, that I was to soon marry. Suddenly, at a place where the trail becomes crowded with trees and branches close by, I seen a long, hairy arm appear from behind the tree, which quickly covered my mouth and scooped me up over his shoulder. It was a young Sasquatch. I became terrified and began to fight with all my might. In those days, I was a very strong person, but it was no good. The young Sasquatch was strong as a bear and easily held me under one arm. With his other hand, he smeared tree gum, or sap, over my eyes, sticking them shut so I could not see where he was going to be taking me. He then began to run and run for a long time. While I could not see, I felt like I was on a wild galloping horse with large strides that he was covering in great distances. He ran up and down hills and around trees, never stopping once to take a breath. Once he had to swim a river, which I felt was quite large. I did think as we crossed the river this might be my chance to make an escape, but honestly I was so frightened with the to torrent waters I felt it would surely sweep me away and I would drown. So instead I gripped tight to his arm and his shoulders, which were quite muscular and large. Now, I like the way she is describing this. She says she's terrified, but I mean, it's almost like she admires this creature, you know muscular biceps and not stopping for a breath. I was going to say, you got to admire a creature that can snatch up a person and run for miles and, and swim over river. the shoulder. I mean, yeah. So he's, he's an impressive specimen. She actually says, you know, I was quite impressed with his abilities to run the long distances and now swim this river with what seemed to be ease. Now, after reaching the other side of the river, he began to climb and climb. And while I still could not see, I noticed the temperature becoming much colder. And so I assumed we must be climbing a very tall mountain. Last, the Sasquatch finally stopped running and slowed. It was as if we were possibly on a shallow ledge. And he was feeling his way. I heard small stones tumble away. Finally, we entered what I had to assume was a cave. It was a quiet area with just a bit of light that I could now see through my sap-covered eyes. He gently laid me down on something soft that I thought might be a bed of grass. He then wiped away the tree sap delicately from my eyes, allowing me to see once again. I could hear others talking. They spoke a language I could not understand, but parts did seem to be fragments of another Indian tribe that my people sometimes traded with, called the Douglas tribe. Now, as my eyes grew accustomed to the dim light, I discovered the cave floor was covered entirely with well-preserved furs from various animals. As I felt of them and examined them, I must say, they were better preserved than even my own native tribe could even accomplish. In the center of the cave floor, this fur, the furs had been pulled apart, and there was a spot with a small fire, the only lighting for the chamber. 
As my eyes continued to adapt, I noticed indeed we were not alone, and found the sources of the other voices that I had heard. There were two more Sasquatch figures that emerged closer to the firelight, revealing their faces, examining me as much as I was trying to examine them. They were gentle-looking, with round heads and two large brown eyes that was separated further than that of humans, with a larger flat nose. They were covered with a reddish-brown fur, commonly three to four inches in length, that covered their entire body, with the exception of the palms of their hands, the base of their feet, and directly around the eyes, nose, and mouth. That area of exposed skin was a bluish-gray color. I remember it well in the firelight. To me as a young girl, these two new creatures appeared very old. Later, I learned these were the parents of the young male Sasquatch who had abducted me. As they approached me for the first initiation, I began to cry, and I begged they return me to my people. They only smiled and shook their head, showing some signs of understanding. They were very gentle and friendly towards me always. For almost the entire year, I stayed with them. However, at no time was I ever left alone. At least one of these creatures was always in the same room or within grabbing distance of me. If I ever wandered too far, truthfully, I never left the cave for that entire year. Several times I would make my way up to the entrance to look out, but always they would gently lead me back, after allowing me to look out for a short period of time. They fed me very well, on fish, berries, and greens. Never once did I ever go hungry, and I was allowed to participate with them eating almost like that of a family around the fire. Over time, I even learned a few of their words in their language. Again, it was similar in some ways to the Douglas tribe, another Native American Indian tribe in the area. I would ask from time to time, Can I go home? I want to see my people. They would always reply with the same kind smile and shake their head, No. At one point, I attempted to communicate with my young Sasquatch friend and asked him, How did he capture so many animals such as the sheeps and goats and bear hides to line the entire cave floor? He looked at me puzzled, smiled, and expressed his answer by holding his hands up, both open, and then making fists squeezing motions. I followed up and said, you just caught them with your hands? He smiled and nodded. I had to envision that he would simply lie and wait until the prey approached him enough that he could reach out, and with his strength that I experienced, I could understand how he could easily end their lives. As months passed, I began to feel very sick, a type of sickness I had never experienced. After several weeks, I went to my captors, and I tried to communicate just exactly how sick I was, and to please, pleading to take me back to my people for help. They again shook their heads, but did seem to express concern. As days passed on, I only got more and more sick. I thought I was dying, and so one day it must have been apparent to them as the three communicated one to another, parents to the son, finally the young male Sasquatch stormed out of the cave, seeming quite upset, even growling and showing signs of aggression, which frightened me even more. However, he soon came back to me with a leaf full of tree sap. His sad face looked down upon me, and he began to seal my eyes once again with the tree sap, and gently scooped me up, and we left the cave. It was a horrible experience, one of pain. While reliving my original abduction a year ago, I remembered traveling what most likely was the same path down the same mountain, across the same river, but this time I was dizzy, disoriented, sick, and even puking. 
As we crossed the river, I did not have the strength to cling on to him as I originally did. He, however, used his muscular arm and hand and held me tight until we crossed safely. We continued the trek up and down the hills and around the trees until he finally stopped and gently lowered me to the ground, leaning my weak body against a tree. He gently once again removed the tree sap from my eyes, and once he was sure I could see, he pointed towards what I could make out as my village. He looked down at me almost in tears, shaking his head. They tur- then he turned and slowly walked away. I summoned what little strength I had left to stand and made my way down the short path to the village. My people were enthralled to see me. They had thought I had died a year ago. I made my way to the house. Some of my people helped me there. I was still dizzy and disoriented. My parents were super happy to see me, but they noticed that I was very ill, so they sent for the medicine man of the tribe. I made my way with their help and lay in bed. I honestly passed out. I am not sure how many days had passed, but apparently upon awaking, I gave birth to a child. I was confused, sad, that they told me that the child passed only a few hours after being born. I never got to see the child, but I was told that it was not like our people. This haunted me in many of my dreams, and still to this day, there was a part of me that wanted to see him or her and to hold it, but I never had the opportunity. I was so weak that I simply passed in and out of consciousness for many days afterwards. At what time they told me that they had given the child a proper burial, and I decided coming out of it, I never wanted to see another Sasquatch again. That's the story. That has so much strange, weird stuff. So, in it. so at some point she had relations. Mm-hmm. Never talks about yeah, it. She doesn't mention that, but she just talks about getting sick all the time. Very sudden. sick. Thought she was dying. But you would think that at some point in her interviews. We had intercourse. He threw himself upon me. What I, I don't know, you know. But uh, yeah, never once talks about that. But then it does mention early on in the story that she was supposed to be marrying a young brave. But from what I could tell, she was probably still very young, 14-ish. So maybe she just didn't understand everything that was happening. I don't know. But again, you would think as a Native American born in the wilderness and around wildlife, you, you would understand that. Well, as you say, cultural taboos being what they are, I know among, you know, repressed European folks, that's something you don't talk about, but I think then, I, I, and I might, I might be wrong, but I think native cultures are a little more open about it. And I would think so. You would think she'd understand as a teenager. That was one of my biggest things it. I came away. It's like, she talks about all this stuff, but she never talks about, we'll call it the incident. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the Wow, that's I I I I had her story marked. I was gonna go through it for my notes, um, but once I did Osman's story, it just took up so much space. So I'm glad that you did it because I never got to read her story. That's kind of interesting. It was definitely a strange one. And again, for many of the the Native American tribes, they state this is fully believed amongst them, at least with the the Canadian tribes. And that this was the only incident of a Native American being abducted, much less impregnated, yeah, uh, by a Sasquatch. So, um, wow. yeah, there it is. Now, I know you've got a lot of details on probably the most epic Bigfoot abduction story. Well, this is the story of Albert Ostman, who, uh, again, he documented his story. This is taken mostly from his firsthand account that he, he wrote down. 
there are some details taken from some subsequent interviews at the end just to sort of verify the story in a way. But but Osman here, I had read this story a couple of times and, and I find it fascinating. So um and I, I know when I proposed this, I wasn't sure there'd be enough you know, I know we talked about doing Bigfoot abductions and we were gonna do multiple stories, but I just had so much on Osman that I, I could I thought that was I, I had enough. So if, <laughs> if you came with even one story, I think it would be about a, a whole episode. Well, take it away, Bill. I'm intrigued. So Albert Osman was a Canadian prospector, lumberjack, and woodsman, and he claimed to be abducted by a Sasquatch. Said he was held captive for nearly six days, and the event took place near Toba Inlet in British Columbia in 1924. There we go, British Columbia. Now, Osman here is a man's man. He had gone to that area for vacation and to search for gold mines, and he was roughing it. And when I say roughing it, I mean roughing it. I ain't talking about modern day roughing it. I'm talking about Primitive camping, sleeping on the ground with your bag next to you. Uh, and that was his idea of vacation. Like, that was him. He's like, I'm going to chill and find a gold mine. Got to admire people like that. That's not me. That is not me, but yeah. Now, I guess he, he'd made some stops in a couple of civilized places before heading out into the wilderness. And he'd heard stories about the man beasts that supposedly roamed the woods. Now, one tale related to him by an old native he had met during his travels told of a white man who had bought a gold mine. Now, he had a great deal of luck on, on this find, uh, was coming back to town every few days with a bag full of gold and just living it up, man. He was, and, and, you know, he made a name for himself. People got used to him. Every couple of days, you know, he'd come out of the wilderness and they'd have a big old whooping party. So, like, they, they were- Hard not to believe it when he's got the gold. Yeah. So, when he didn't return one time, and day after day went by and he had not returned, legend claimed that he had been killed by a Sasquatch. Now, Osman had never heard the term Sasquatch at this point in time, didn't really know what they were. And so he goes, he asked the old native, he goes, what are, what, what is the Sasquatch? And so the native tells him, well, they have hair all over their bodies, but they're not animals. They're people. They're big people living in the mountains. My uncle saw the tracks of one that were two feet long, and one old native saw one over eight feet tall once. So they believed in them. They were people of the mountains. And Osman looked at the old native, and he's... Just, you're, you're full of it, old man. There's, there's no hairy man creature roaming the woods. And so later that day, he makes his first camp and the old native has dinner with him. And Osman says, okay, I'm going to be back in three weeks. I'll be back. I will camp here in three weeks. And, and so watch for me so you can, you know, we will go back into town together and I'll, I'll head home. Now, during Osman's trip, he ate mostly dried and canned foods, um, but he did look for deer trails. He was going to supplement his food supplies with, you know, by hunting and fishing and whatnot which is to be expected. He's out there in the wilderness. That's sure. what you're going to do. After a few days of hiking and overnighting, he found a nice spot up in the mountains. Now, he had a really good view of the surrounding lands. I kind of want to say maybe it was on like a flat spot up in the mountains, but he could see the surrounding lands. He had a, a spring nearby, so he had a readily available supply of clean water. There was a sheltered place to rest, and, you know, this was just like the best place he could find. So after being set up here, strange things have been going to happen. He awakes one morning to find that his things had been moved all about during the night, uh, but didn't really appear that he was missing anything. So he thought, well, okay, the animals got into his stuff, varmints, raccoons, whatever, critters. Drug it around, knocked it over. That night, he loads his gun before sleeping, and he puts it next to his sleeping bag. He said, you know, critters coming in, he's going to take care of that problem. So the next morning, he wakes up. His pack had been emptied and turned inside out. He was missing a half-pound package of prunes and his pancake powder. So something had taken his food. Can be making some prune pancakes. Now his salt was left untouched, which led him to believe that this was no ordinary animal. You would think salt, you know, animals love salt. Deer licks. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. 
So he climbs a big rock that night. He's going to keep watch. Whatever Varmin's getting into his camp, he's going to keep watch. He's going to deal with the problem. Nothing shows up that night. Of course. Leaves his camp completely undisturbed. So for the next three nights, he, he just goes ahead and sleeps with his gun, wakes up. Things have been disturbed. He's getting used to it. It's happening every night. He can't catch the, can't catch who's, who's, what's going on. The fourth night, he's getting ready to go to bed and he thinks it's going to rain that night. So a couple of things he decides he's going to do. One, he's going to stay up all night. He's going to put an end to this one way or the other. He makes a special note of where all of his gear is mentally. Kind of keep, takes a mental tab of where everything's at. He sleeps in his clothes in case he, he needs to wake up to confront a, this, this nightly visitor. He sleeps with his rifle inside his sleeping bag. So he's got it right there. It's handy. He doesn't have to reach for it. He drove his mining pick into a nearby tree within arm's reach in case he has to fight hand to hand. He's ready to he's, go. He's thinking this out. And finally, despite all intent to stay awake all night, he falls asleep. <laughs> that night, he's awoken when something picks him up in his sleeping bag, just scoops him up, sleeping bag and all, and just lifts him up off the ground. Now, he thinks immediately, first thought, he's going to be thrown on a horse. Some Somebody is, is abducting him. Gotcha. Once he gets his wits about him, he's, he immediately is like, no, something else is going on here. I'm being carried. Almost as if he's been thrown over some big man's shoulder and he's just being carried like, like a toddler. Had, Jared, yeah. Yeah. And, and whatever it is, he's like, what kind of creature can just grab a man, full, you know, full grown man in a sleeping bag? And, I, and I'm telling you, Osman was, in the pictures I've seen of Osman later on in life, he wasn't a small guy. I can only imagine in his youth, he would have been a fairly big sized dude, you know? Um, and again, he's, you know, prospector lumberjack woodsman he's a he's probably a he's strong guy he's kind of like that uh, picturesque of the bounty paper towel guy yeah, with the axe he's over his yeah, arm he's not a small guy so whatever is carrying him seems to be going up into the mountains it, it's breathing heavily sometimes it would cough and it's right there you know next to him at times it seemed as if the creature would tire of carrying osman over his shoulder so it would kind of drag him along the ground <laughs> which obviously osman did not like that not so comfortable they, at all. They traveled up and down hill for, for probably three hours. Now, he's still got his rifle. Got his rifle in the bag. That can't be comfortable no. either. So, Osman has no idea. He doesn't know which direction they're traveling. He doesn't know uphill, downhill. It just keeps, you know, he's being just being carried along. And finally, thump, he's thrown down on the ground in a big, in a big heap in his, his sleeping bag. So, here's the sounds of the canned food in his pack sack also being dropped. So, whatever grabbed him also grabbed his, his food. He could hear a chatter, like some kind of conversation, but in a language he could not understand. And finally, like like any of us, I think, it took him a little bit, but he, Osman gathers the cur- courage to kind of peek out of the bag. He's going to find out what's going on, who's got him, what's, what, what the deal is. Now, it's, it's dark. He doesn't see much, but he can tell by the voices around him the direction that they're coming from, and, and, and he believes there's at least four creatures here. Now, now, is he in the forest? Is he in a cave? Is he in a canyon? Does it well, say? Or I'll, I'll get to that. Okay. He, this, okay. this is his story as he relates it, so I'm just following. Okay. I got you. So, so now he begins to believe the old Indian stories about, you know, he thinks, he, he believes now he's among the Sasquatch. Like I would agree. As the day begins to brighten, Osman can see the creatures that had taken him. Two of them are adults, which he refers to as the old man and the old lady, and two are children, which he refers to as the young boy and the young girl. And the boy and the girl seem to be frightened of him. And the old lady does not seem to be pleased with his presence here. Basically, you know, like, she's kind of upset with the old man. Like, why'd you bring this? You know, we don't need this. Now, the old man seems to be arguing his case with the old woman. He's arguing, like, you know, hey, whatever the story, whatever he brought Osman there, he, he's got a reason. Food, a pet, whatever that reason may be. Well, Osman eventually would believe he was there as a potential suitor for the young girl. Oh. Uh, he noticed they were covered in hair. They wore no clothes at all. 
uh, similar to your description, you know, the, the palms of the hands, the base of the feet and part of the face. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said their feet were leathery, like a, like the padding on a dog's foot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So he said now it, it, the, at least the old man was over eight feet tall. And so after he gets his wits about him, he's finally like, Hey, what do you fellows want with me? At which point they all kind of chatter at him all at once. And he's, he's got, you know, no idea what they're saying. And yeah. then they all just kind of walk off and leave him on his own. So now he takes a moment to acquaint himself with his surroundings, figure out what's going on. He's in a small valley surrounded mountains all around. The only exit is a V-shaped opening about eight feet wide, but the old man always kind of sits near the opening, protecting it, guarding it, whatever, preventing Osman from escaping. Now he decides he's not going to use his gun. They haven't done him any harm yet. And he doesn't need to defend himself. He doesn't want to hurt him. He, you know, he, he doesn't really, at this point, he doesn't really know why, why well, he's there. Yeah. At best, you're going to shoot one. You got three others yeah. to deal with. If you take down one. He also felt that they didn't plan on any harm. You know, they, they weren't going to hurt him. They did feed him a sweet tasting grass while they held him captive. Kind of to supplement the food that he had with him. As I think he still had some belongings on, on him. And he said, occasionally the female would wash and stack leaves and they, they slept on woven he, they, he didn't really describe it as a pet. He described like a mat, a woven mat. Couldn't tell what it was made of, but they didn't seem to be need to be washed. And they seemed to be very durable, whatever they were. Hmm. So he decides he's going to move all of his belongings up against the west wall. There's a couple of small cypress trees there that he could use as shelter. So there he lays out all his belongings that he's got on him, which is mainly canned food, but some other necessities. And he goes out to find water, which luckily there was a spring in this little valley, which is probably another reason why they were settled in there. So after getting a drink and collecting some water, he comes back and he finds the young boy looking over his things. Uh, and as he approaches, of course, the young boy kind of skitters away. You know, he's kind of afraid of Osman. He doesn't want to engage him. So his first night there, he decides, I'm going to have to escape. And he goes, they're not letting me go. I got to get out of here somehow. So his food and supplies are low. He, he thinks he's barely got enough to get back to civilization as it is. So he grabs his things and he's like, I'm just going to walk right out and see what happens. So he starts heading for the opening of the valley. And the old man gets up and holds up a hand like he's going to push him back. So he's like, okay, so. Hint taken. Yeah. So Osman backs up. And he doesn't want to get too close. You know, he doesn't, doesn't know what the old fellow is going to do to him. And at this point in time, he's also counting like, I've only got six shells. It's going to take more than one for each of these. So he goes back to his little camp in the cypress trees. And he's got to come up with a better idea. So a few days later, he's got a, a, a snuff can. Tobacco, right? Yep, yep. It's got about a teaspoon of snuff in it, and he gives it to the young boy because he's got an idea. He's going to try something here. And the boy takes it to the old man, and the old man takes a little bit out and, t- and tastes it. And they seem to have a conversation about it. And then Osman takes some of the snuff that he has left in another can, and he puts it in his mouth, and he just acts like it's the most delicious thing he's ever had. <laughs> oh, man, this is good stuff. I'm glad I got this. We're going to play this. So uh, Now, it was here that Osman decided to document sort of some descriptions about the creature's uh, first, the young lady and the young boy were very, very similar physically to the point that the young lady didn't, he said she was flat chested. So as far as that goes, like the only difference was, you know, well, the obvious, the obvious, he determined that they must've been between 11 and 18. Uh, they were both, the boy himself was almost seven feet tall, probably weighed about 300 pounds or more. Chest was 50 to 55 inches wide, 36 to 38 inch waist, wide jaws with a narrow forehead. That's a pretty good description. I yeah, mean, I mean, dimensional detailed. and everything. Now, the young lady was slim compared to the others, and but not at all proportioned like a human female compared to them. She was just smaller. Uh, he said the old lady had to be between 40 and 70. She was over seven feet tall. 
about five to six hundred pounds, said she had wide hips and had a goose-like waddle when she walked. Now the old man, he's he's the old man was the most intimidating. His eye teeth were longer than the rest, like tusks, come out of his mouth. Uh, he was nearly eight feet tall, with big barrel chest and a and a hump on his back, kind of a gorilla look to him. Had powerful shoulders and biceps and wide hands. So on his sixth day, Osman's plans come together. He knows what he's going to do, and he's going to get out of here. So he's 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 ready to get out. So he decides he's going to make his escape. So after breakfast, he opens up the the can full of snuff that he's got. And this one's almost full, right? And he takes a little bit out and he puts it in his mouth. He's acting like this is the best thing he's ever had. God, you're going to love this. You should try it. So the old man reaches out and he gives him the tin full of snuff. And he's thinking he's going to reach in and take a taste like he saw him do. If he can get him to take enough, maybe. No, the old man just tips the whole thing into his mouth. Chugs it. And then licks the inside of the container. Uh. After a few minutes, the old man's eyes begin to roll back in his head, and it's plain that he's, you know, oh my gosh, like he's eating this whole thing that of would, yeah, stuff. Make you sick. He begins to 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 react, overreact. He, he sticks his head down between his knees like he's sick. He starts squealing like a stuck pig. And so Osman's this is his this is his moment. He grabs his rifle and he he starts heading he starts heading for the the, the exit. Meanwhile, the old man's going over to the spring. He's going to get a drink. He's going to try to get this taste out of his mouth, try to do something. Uh, so Osman makes his move for the exit. The old lady makes like she's going to grab him, but he gets out right before she can grab him. He fires one shot over her head. And he, he at this point in time, he guesses these creatures have never encountered firearms of any kind because she takes off in fear running and goes back in the valley and like gathers up the youngins That'd to get away to from him. early on. Yeah. yeah. Osman claims in his haste he made three miles in record time over rough terrain, fleeing from the, the family here. I'm out of here. And he, he does eventually make it back to civilization on the supplies that he's got, and he doesn't tell anybody what happened. For over 24 years, he doesn't tell this story to anyone because people are going to think he's nuts, right? Now you said this was a period of about six days? Six days total. He escaped on the sixth day. Well, that's obviously easier to uh, not have to explain than in mine where she was gone yeah. a year. Okay. Now- some of the Bigfoot community do not believe Osman's claims, but there are documented accounts of him telling the story at least as far back as the 1940s, which is well before Bigfoot stories had come into common lore. So they do say he told the story about Sasquatches before Sasquatches were a big deal. Now, Rene DeHinden, which if you follow this particular field of research, you'll know he's a very well-known Bigfoot researcher. He believes Osman's tale, and there are reasons for that. He interviewed Osman, and he brought in a primatologist to ask him some questions. And the intent was to ask these questions to maybe try to trip Osman up a little bit. Like, we're going to ask you about primate physiology and behavior, and, and you're going to give us the wrong answers, and we're going to know that you're not telling us the truth. So they, they brought up body morphology, like the body shapes and things like that, and potential mating habits he may have observed. And he said, at this point in time, you know, he said he believed that the young, the young girl showed a great deal of interest in him. Uh, she would peek at him through the bushes and watch him during regular activities. And he believed that maybe the old man had brought him in as a particular, like as a suitor for her. So, you know, he kind of felt sort of protective about describing her too much. He didn't really talk about her a lot. And Osman kind of had the sensibilities like an old fashioned, so he didn't really want to talk about the ladies' bodies. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Now, one thing he noted was that the old man, and it'll be a little blue here, was only about two inches. <laughs> now, the primatologist. You know, they they went back and they're like, well, you know, you would think he would exact if he was going to exaggerate. Here's where he's going to exaggerate. Right, you know? right. But he said it's actually in line with uh, gorillas. Gorillas are the largest known primate, and they are very similarly endowed. 
So you know, like a hamster. It's it's in line with large <laughs> primates. He also said that he never saw the creatures eat meat, but only plants. Which you know, again, the gorilla is also primarily a vegetarian. So it does go back with what we know about great apes. If these are a derivative ape, some sort, mm-hmm. they have very ape-like traits. But these particular details are what kind of convinced the Hinden and some of the folks that Osman was speaking of of real creatures when he talked about his experience. These weren't. This isn't something he made up in his head. You know, was was did did Osman spend six days with a family of Sasquatch? I mean, it sounds like he did. Now he didn't get knocked up. Good for him. <laughs> and he he didn't you know didn't have any relations. But again, he thought he was there as a suitor. So. Well, and you mentioned the vegetarian thing. That was one of the things in some of our other podcasts that we talked about with the Canadians, forest people, and and Sasquatch. Some of them in the one uh, town, they seem to have developed a taste for human flesh in yeah. particular. So different areas. I mean, for sure. But I I was impressed with. The amount of detail that he took, I mean, for six days, giving girth and, and dimensions. Well, he spent six days with him when I, I guess don't imagine you, he had much else you to don't do. Have, yeah, I was going to say, nothing much else to do, so you kind of observed this, but uh, very interesting story. And I have heard stories similar that yeah. were probably plays, I will say, off of this story. I, uh, I had one that I almost included, a lot of the same stuff, but it took place like 20, 30 years after this, yeah. you know, and it was a guy called into a podcast and didn't give his real name. And, you know, you kind of got to well, look at some of that. And, and Well, and again, like the Osman story, I know you've been into these kind of things, but you hadn't heard of the Osman story when I proposed it. I don't know. No, there was tidbits of the details that as you were telling the story, I was like, I do remember something about that, but I guess I just didn't put two and two together that he was actually abducted. I thought it was just experiences that he had. Yeah. I was out there, so very interesting. So now for our nightmare headline. Take it away, Bill. This is uh, from WTOL 11, January 9th, 2023. Ooh, very um, nice. Bigfoot on the moon? Bigfoot on the moon. Here's our headline. One small step for man, one giant step for Bigfoot. <laughs> Fremont artist Sasquatch sculpture to be archived on the moon. Yeah, I was a little, uh, that, that headline definitely grabbed me. So apparently Dan Chudzinski, a Northwestern Ohio artist, began work on a project entitled Evasive Species during COVID lockdown of 2020. The Norman Rockwell Museum of Massachusetts tasked him with creating a piece for an exhibit. He was asked to make a hyper-realistic Sasquatch sculpture. Basically, he was told, we want something to make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. <laughs> now, initially... Uh, Chudzinski intended to make a 10 foot tall sculpture. He was going to go life size, full thing. I'm assuming he realized the enormity of such a task, you know, pun intended, I guess. <laughs> but he eventually settled on just creating a bust of Bigfoot. He used 400 pounds of clay, finished with silicone, paint, and taxidermy hair, installing each hair by hand in a process that took three weeks. Whoa. Now, the piece has won many Best in Show awards, and an image of the piece will be etched into nickel microfilm and then archived in a time capsule on the south pole of the moon. Wow. This is part of the Lunar Codex Contemporary Art Archive Initiative. That's a mouthful. That's Yeah, say that five times fast. The launch window to send the microfilm is slated for fall or winter of this year, 2023, during NASA's Griffin Lunar Lander mission in partnership with SpaceX. So there is going to be a sculpture or an image of a sculpture of Bigfoot on the moon. And if you see the picture, it's, it's a very lifelike, it's very scary. 
And it's got the big old tusks like, you know, were described by Mr. Osman. I couldn't help but when you were talking about, you know, make it big, make it believable, make it scary. I had flashbacks to the movie Harry and Henderson. <laughs> and you remember the father figure, he was an artist and he drew this beautiful sculpture of a very tame, you know, the Harry of the Hendersons. And the shop owner comes in with markers and stuff and he goes, nobody's going to want to shoot this yeah. thing. So he drew like fangs and made them all, you know, all kind of crazy looking. I was on TikTok last night. I'll tell this story because I thought it was really funny and I'm glad I saw it. And it works very well with you mentioning Harry and the Hendersons. <laughs> There was a guy who was a cast member at Universal Studios back in the, the 80s, 90s time frame, and they got the Harry costume, mm -hmm. and they had to pick a cast member, and everybody wanted to do it. Now, this guy just happened to be taller than most other cast members. So of course, he gets to wear the Harry costume. Now, at the end of the day, at these big parks, they usually do some kind of big fireworks or a show or whatever. I don't know. I don't know how familiar you are with that, but everybody at Universal, they're watching the fireworks at the end of the day. Right. All the characters are, are waiting at the exit to, to tell everybody goodbye. And he goes, man, that the, this costume was so heavy. So he's kind of crouched down, and he's kind of hidden behind like a big trash can. He doesn't realize it, but he's out of sight. <laughs> and so. I can see where this is going. Yeah. So the fireworks are over. Everybody starts heading for the gates. And who, the Woody Woodpecker guy, you know, he's like, hey, man, you got to get up, Harry. You got to get up. People are coming. And he says, this one woman was like leading the pack. She's on her way out the door. Got a very expensive camera hanging around her neck. And here comes Harry, this big Sasquatch, <laughs> just coming up out of the darkness. And she screams and trips and f slides like on her, on her, oh, her palms, smashes her camera. Oh, and he goes, oh, God, I'm getting fired today. And they start calling, you know, first responders and stuff. They get first aid over there. His boss gets called over there. Now, he's in costume. He's not allowed to talk, right? So he's right. still. We've talked about this on the podcast. Yeah. You got to stay in character. So she's sitting on the bench, and he comes over, and he sits down, and he's trying to mime, like, holding his heart and, like, <laughs> you know, like, wiping a tear from his eye. And, and she goes, she goes, don't worry, Harry. That was the best thing i've seen all day <laughs> so he, he thought it, he, he, he thought he's gonna lose his job and she thought it was the coolest thing she'd seen all day <laughs> well folks we hope that you've enjoyed yet another installment of nightmares on the lost highway and just know that maybe not the very first time you heard it but at least the second we told you bigfoot's gonna be on the moon <laughs> thanks for listening so he decides he's gonna make his mistake gonna make his mistake he decides he's going to make his escape. Maybe so, a mistake. <laughs> so after breakfast. We'd like to give a shout out to our first uh, paying sponsor, Raven's Loft. That's our family shop here located in uh, London, Missouri. It's your one-stop gaming, vintage toy, and collectible shop where you can find Star Wars, Transformers, G.I. Joe, comics, vinyl records, role-play gaming, Magic the Gathering, and so much more. We're located here at 223 West Commercial, downtown Lebanon, and also in our second location, uh, also here in Lebanon, at the Heartland Antique Mall. We'd like to thank Ravensloft for, again, supporting Nightmares on the Lost Highway. I want to take a time to thank the people that helped bring this all together. Uh, Alex Tudor, you can almost call him our producer at this point. Sarah Tudor, who also helps with some of the technical stuff. I want to take a moment to extend thanks to Eric for letting us use his space to record in, kind of our makeshift studio. 
I, in turn, would like to thank Bill for, one, putting up with me and uh, using this camaraderie to do something we both very much love and enjoy doing, and thank Bill's family for allowing him to spend all the time to work and clean up our recordings and present them in what uh, you hear in the final uh, terms, uh, the final edition, if you will. Um, And I'd like to thank all of you for continuing to, to listen. I know we've got some loyal followers out there. We do this as a labor of love, but we're, we're happy that there are people that enjoy it as, hopefully as much as we do. Thank you very much.